Alright folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode, I chat with actor John Kapalos about his days on the stage, his nights filming Forever Night, getting in the zone as a performer, and more. As always, thank you all for listening out there. And if you'd like to help the show grow and you're listening on your podcasting platform of choice, please leave us a review. And if you happen to be watching the video on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe, all that stuff I have to say because it does help. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> John, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Could you repeat the... Uh... I can, I can. Okay, so we got book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, all of the above. Probably more. Of, of all of them, probably a troublemaker. And I'm not destructive by nature, although I think I probably have been in interpersonal relationships without knowing it early on in life. But, you know, I'll just cop to being a, a person in that regard. No, I think more or less I was... Um, Probably because I was the youngest of, of three, I was probably more into getting people's attention. So I used my wiles, either my uh, ability to get attention or humor or any sort of thing that got that. Not cherry bombs, though. <laughs> Nothing to hurt people or animals. Anything to hurt my dad's feelings, you know. <laughs> so whereabouts did you grow up? Oh, I grew up. I'm sorry, your accent's very... I'm in South Carolina. I get it all the time. <laughs> I grew up, well, in London, Ontario, where we don't have as, as charming an accent as you. <laughs> London, Ontario, Canada, which is uh, two hours from Detroit, two mm. hours from Toronto, and sort of the boot of southern Ontario, Canada. When it comes to your parents, were either of them artistically inclined or involved in the business at all? You think that's where your roots came from, performance-wise? You know, I think my mother and father were both people who appreciated the arts, I don't think that they would be... My mother, you know, played violin in high school and, and loved music. And I think my father loved, as I said, the arts and literature. My dad read a lot. My dad would be... Uh, be the, he would be the reader. Both my siblings were... Um, my older siblings were and are quite intellectual. Um, I think that for the most part, growing up as I did, I probably gravitated towards performance just to get attention, as I said. Yeah. Speaking of music, what sort of records were spinning around the house when you were growing up? I listened to a lot of people my age, and they talk about their parents and what they listened to. And my folks, we had a record player, and we listened to it a lot. My parents listened to Greek music because my, both my parents, my father was born in Greece and my mother was born of Greek parents. So they had that sort of part in their in their past. And that would be Greek folk music, a lot of, I mean, Greek folk music, which is strangely like other types of folk music, stringed instrument, a lot of singing about broken lives and lost and love and all that sort of stuff. And, and, in, and sort of also an interesting mix of um, what I would call um, show tunes and popular music mm. and, and things that I think gravitated towards... Uh, folk music and you know my, my brother and sister as they were older we listened to a lot of you know Joan Baez and and Bob Dylan and 
a lot of folk music in the early 60s. And then, um, you know, on that uh, fateful February morning in 19... February morning. It was a morning the day after school when the Beatles played it uh, on Ed Sullivan. I mean, that changed everything. Like, and any kid that was like, you know, I was in grade two, as we said, in Canada or second grade. It was amazing how transformative that was. Yeah, I get that a lot, especially from people from that era. Well, and you also have to understand, I mean, it's kind of like if you place yourself in it. I mean, I know that if, if you put yourself in that time frame, when Kennedy was assassinated, it irked and jerked the world. And uh, people were, I think, collectively depressed. And then when the Beatles showed up, it was like, wow, this is cool. And yeah. it sort of made everybody feel better. And I know it's it sounds like a cliche and it's sort of like people look back on it, but it's true. In the February of 1964, that dark winter, there wasn't much to look forward to. I also think for me, just the fact that, you know, the radio and, and, and uh, we're lucky, I was lucky to grow up in a time when, you know, music was always swirling around wherever you were. And did you uh, pick up an instrument yourself? I took eight years of piano. It was sort of foisted on me, and then I picked up the guitar, the, the ukulele, and then the guitar. I, I taught myself how to play the guitar, and now I'm <laughs> trying to figure it out <laughs> for real as a, as a too-late adult. If, you play, if anybody plays an instrument, it's always a lifelong fascination, right? Right, right. Did you ever uh, have any inkling to join any bands early on? Honestly, I had, I had a really good friend of mine, Paul, who was, uh, he's, sadly, he's died. But he was a great guitar player, as well as being a really sweet man. And he was so good, man. He was so good. I realized, gosh, you know, if that's what it takes, I don't have that. <laughs> right. He <laughs> was, you know, out of the box, he was good. Now, in retrospect, I probably could have gotten better <laughs> and probably still can, you know, practice. And there are two types of people, people that are really great out of the box. I mean, I've seen this with actors, too. You know, I don't think I was... I think I was probably a little bit better out of the box as an actor, but still, I think there's a bit of a curse when you're really, really good at something right away, because sometimes you don't work at it as hard or you don't appreciate it. But that's another story. So in terms of the, the, the music thing, I really felt like I had a stronger choice in being in, in, in the theater and, and being an actor. Plus, I think I liked it more. I mean, I think I had more of a feel for it. I don't know why, because I mean, I came out of nowhere. And with that, you know, the talented analogy that you were talking about, one I like to use is uh, just like uh, any famous sports figure, you know, like Michael Jordan is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But on, on the same vein, he's also one of the worst general managers of all time because he can't understand why these players were not able to do what he can do, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 I mean, that's I like I would, you know, I, I've directed and I would like to direct more. Uh, I hope I'm a good director. But it's interesting how people's talents are specific to their particular specialty or superpower. Right, right, right. You know, for example, you know, certain musicians are great musicians, but they're not they're not good in a group. Exactly. Or certain guys are better in a group or people are better in a group than they are individually. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, people have strengths. I think as an actor, what's important to realize is you have to identify, I think the actors that I think that succeed and this is a big, I think the actors that succeed, dot, 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 but are ones that can identify their weakest points and try to improve them, period. I think most artists, yeah. you know, if you're not good at something, it's good to know that you're not good at it. What I don't like is when somebody says to me, oh, I'm not good at that. I say, well, wait a minute, you can get better at that if you know you're not good at that. And there are lots of things that I think people put in front of themselves where they're saying, well, I'm not good at, therefore, I'm never going to be good at that. 
And again, that's another subject. <laughs> a little self-awareness goes a long way. <laughs> well, I mean, in the acting world, it certainly does. And mm. in the performance world, you have to have a certain amount of self-awareness, a certain amount, you know, and also you have to be somewhat fearless and self-awareness in that, you know, I you'll meet certain performers and say, I should be able to play, you know, this sort of character. And you go, well, wait a minute, that's not something realistically you should do. Vice versa, people might say, well, you know, have you ever considered doing this? Well, that's outside of my range. Well, maybe it isn't. I mean, Herbie Hancock has written a wonderful book called Possibilities. It's a great book, just the title alone. But, you know, understanding the possibilities, I know this is unprompted because I'm yammering a lot, but John Candy was a big mentor in my early life when I started acting at Second City in Toronto. And it was all about this is possible. This is a choice you can make. This is a choice you can make. And, you know, and as an actor or as a musician, like, wait a minute, I can play this chord or I can play it this way or I can think about something this way or I don't have to play it that way. You know, I don't have to be that way. That was the exciting thing for me finding Second City. It wasn't necessarily traditional theater per se. Right. Ah, I could go up on stage and improvise and perhaps be funny and then perhaps make some money. Since you just mentioned his name, were you you and John were at Second City to, together at the same time? Not really. I was John Candy was way ahead of me, older in age and, and much more experienced and, and together. When I started in the workshops in 1978, he was a well-established actor and he was in the main company at Second City. So he was sort of a mentor to a group of us, a group of us actors. And um, and I've said this time and time again, and it's very sad that he's not around. But he to know this, but he was a wonderful teacher. The more you see the types of um, Philistines, the people that pass themselves off for teachers in the acting world, be it here in New York or in L.A., there are people that, you know, say they're acting coaches, but they're, you know, they're collecting money and um, cashing in on people's hopes and dreams. So, John, before we go too far from your childhood, uh, when you think back to uh, formative childhood, <laughs> your formative films and TV shows you grew up on, what, what comes to mind initially? Well, you know, where I grew up, there were only um, two TV stations as a kid. There was the Canadian Broadcasting and then Canadian Television, two networks. They came in with bunny ears. And London, Ontario was the first place in North America because of the wealthy families in my neighborhood who cabled, brought cable TV in. So mm -hmm. friends of mine would watch U.S. cable TV. But for the most part, my early influences would be, I would say the biggest influence would be Warner Brothers cartoons, the evening news. The afternoon news, which I would watch with my mother, and movies, old movies. I would get into the habit of coming home for lunch every day growing up and watch about 20 minutes of the beginning of the afternoon movie and go home back to school thinking about what was the rest of the movie. <laughs> no DVR. <laughs> no. And then I'd come home at night and say, hey, Ma, tell me about the rest of the movie. And she'd be, you know, ironing and watching the movie or whatever she'd be doing. And sometimes what I fantasized would be the end of the movie would be actually better than what the actual movie was. Right. <laughs> Do you remember the first film that you saw in theaters? Oh, gosh, in theaters? I saw a movie Father Goose with Cary Grant, 1962. I think um, Mary Poppins, 63. When I started, I mean, I used to go to the movies a lot on my own on Sundays, so Longest Day. I could probably, any movie from 1961, war movies were big, like The Longest Day. I love that movie. I love cowboy movies. Mm. Um, we had theaters downtown, so you could, you know, as kids would do those days, you'd go and you'd watch the movie twice, you know, and uh, maybe you'd sneak into another theater if it was... Security so was lax. 
that period, well, you know, and also Mr. Trudell, who ran the Capitol Theater, lived across the street from us, oh. <laughs> although he was a pretty um, strict guy. First, I mean, I saw a lot of movies growing up. So, I mean, and on TV, I remember watching, I really remember watching uh, Some Like It Hot. I loved that movie, the Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis movie. And, then, and you know, again, not to get too, um, well, you're asking me about my life. In London, Ontario, Canada, you'd get, Canadian TV, you'd get an unholy mix of American movies and then English movies. Mm-hmm. American TV and English TV. I'd sometimes get these English TV shows. And my mother, being a Bostonian, she uh, prejudiced me against my English TV shows. Probably I saw too many movies to give you one specific one. But I remember vividly, and this is again going back to the Beatles, that transformative February was Mary Poppins and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Wow. And all the girls loved Mary Poppins and all, well, and no, the guys did too for the most part. <laughs> but, but it was, you know, it skewed more girly. Were uh, drive-ins as big a deal in Canada back in those days as it was in the U.S.? You know, I was too young. Drive-ins had sort of faded by the time in the late 60s when I got there. But for my brother and sister's generations, they were around. And, you know, my brother, my, 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 my cousin Nick, who's 10 years older than me, he was what we would call a greaser, you know, an Elvis type. Yeah. He had the hair and the comb. And he was like Paul Amat in American Graffiti. You know, I don't know with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> he was like, you know, and I, I, I adored him. Although I have to say, when I sort of got into music, I have to say, this is going to, I'm not a big Elvis guy. I'm a Beatles guy. So, you know, nothing wrong with Elvis. You know, I preferred the four lads from Liverpool. And then, you know, I, I also grew up next to Motown. So, I mean, CKLW, which is a Canadian radio station in Windsor, any kid from my hometown, anybody will tell you my generation, that was the big eight, uh, Windsor, the Motor City, and they just blasted Motown. Mm-hmm. So the Supremes, the Temps, the, you know, the, the Four Tops, uh, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell, you know, all that stuff, you know, Jackson 5, blah, 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 all the effing time. My sister to this day, I mean, whenever I hear a Motown tune, that is my sister's jam. The good stuff. <laughs> well, the good stuff. And, you know, it was just always, it was, you know, the word is ubiquitous. I mean, it was just always in the air. I mean, it was just speaking of Motown, I was just, you know, Barry Gordy's still alive. That's that's wild to think about. I had no idea he was still alive until I was just looking into it recently. I know a little about the guy, but I'm sure that he's lived well and that he's looked <laughs> after himself because he didn't seem to be one of those people that was uh, burning the candle too much. Right, right. And John, this is something I like to ask everyone. You never know uh, what scared you as a kid. I had a reoccurring dream, factories, monsters, and I really hated Sylvester the Cat. Freaking scared the the gond out of me. Even to this day, I see him. It does me a little thing. Yeah, certain cartoon characters. And also my brother and sister, man, they would, you know, I was afraid of the dark. My family's Greek Orthodox, and we had this glow-in-the-dark cross Mm -hmm. corner. And uh, I saw a movie talking about movies when I was a boy. And it was an Italian film or something where this kid disappears and turns up to be a, he becomes an icon on the wall. So every night I'd fall asleep and that this like glowing cross would be at the end of my bed. And I'd just be like this, traumatized by it. And my brother and sister wouldn't help. Like they'd say, you know, good night, good night. By the way, don't look under the bed. <laughs> so you grew up in the 60s. I'm surprised you weren't a Twilight Zone kid like most folks at that time. Well, here you think you're talking about TV. The problem was that because of the two-channel thing and lack of access to American programming, oh, yeah. I didn't grow up watching Carson and all that stuff. The kids in my neighborhood who had the cable, 
they would tell me, oh, there's this guy named Jack Parr, and there's this Joey Bishop show, and and then the monkeys and that sort of stuff would be would seep in, you know, Beverly Hillbillies, all the shows that would get picked up by Canadian TV, and then and then we finally forced our parents getting getting cable. But this is when we were into high school. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> Then my dad got a show on the local cable CV station. What? A Greek-themed uh, show for uh, for uh, the church. <laughs> wow, that's cool. <laughs> Do you have a maybe an aha or a eureka moment you can point to where you decided to give the whole acting thing a try and you thought, you know, that's for me? The way it went in Canada, where I went to school, is you have uh, kindergarten through uh, grade 8 and then 9 through 13, so five years of high school. In the fifth year, you get advanced placement into second year university. They've since dropped it, so it's now up to 12. But So five years of high school is a bit, you know, the fifth year, you're, you're a bit mature and you start chomping at the bit. But it's, it's not a bad year. That said, I went into um, ninth grade and I pulled curtains for the school show, which was the, uh, the boyfriend. In other words, I was a curtain puller and I watched him and I was backstage. And the next year I auditioned for the show and I got the lead in Guys and Dolls. And I was Nathan Detroit. And I, I, that's when I truly got bitten. I got the lead in the school show. I got to get out of class. I got to get a lot of attention. I was pretty good in the show. I got to sing, get a lot of attention. Did I say that? <laughs> I got to um, get the attention of females, which was kind of one of the points. And I actually was pretty good at it. It was something like I went, whoa, I like this. I actually have tapes of the show, like an audio tape. And it was a big moment in my life. And I was in 10th grade, and then I wanted to do serious plays in high school, and nobody would. And then uh, I started getting involved with the university in my hometown. And then I went away to university and fancied myself a journalist for a year at, at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. And then I went to the theater department and film department. I left without graduating, much to my parents' eternal chagrin. And then I, um, for a year I spent sort of wandering. I worked on an oil rig was in Western Canada. I worked in a record store. I starved, sort of had a made up with my parents. I was sort of not in a good place after having quit university. And then I came back and miraculously, the stage of my life, I got involved with Second City. Mm. And that was the whole whirlwind. Are you familiar so, with uh, Armin Shimmerman, the actor Armin Shimmerman? I should be. Who is he? <laughs> Just off the top of my head, I don't know if you watch Star Trek The Next Generation. He was Quark. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know the name, but I don't know the person. No, no, I don't. You know, he said something I really like, and I've kind of incorporated it into interviews now. Uh, there's been a couple of times where he said he's been on stage where it's almost like athletes, how they equate it to being in the zone. And he doesn't remember the actual performance. It's, he just remembers that he did this play on stage at this time, and that's it. Doesn't remember the scene I mean, changes or anything. You're flashing forward to, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that's a whole process thing. I mean, I did a play several years ago, at the about seven, eight years ago with Matthew Arkin at the, called The Prince of Atlantis at the Sagerstrom Arts Center here. And there were nights, and I, I played this fish manga from Boston who lied about his fish, uh, labeling his fish, and somebody died in his restaurant, and he was in jail for it, manslaughter, in the play. <laughs> and there were nights when, you know, I would come off stage and go, wow, what happened? There was a sense of awareness. But there were nights when... I thought I was pretty fucking good up there, and all of a sudden I was thinking the wrong thing, and I was—I took myself out of it. There was one particular night when I thought to myself in the middle of the monologue, "Hey, this is going really well," <laughs> and then the next thing you knew, I didn't know what I was going to say next because mm -hmm. I wasn't in the zone. So to be in the zone also knows—you have to know when not to be in the zone. It's like a skier when you know how to, you're slaloming well, 
But when you know you're not, that's when you wipe out. The thing about being a pro is wiping out without breaking your neck and also being able to sometimes being able to do it in front of an audience without them being able to tell the difference. Right. Which is, which is a real trick. And that's doing 8,000 shows at Second City taught me. Have you ever been heckled on stage? Oh, yeah. You know, I remember when I had my first drink. It's the first thing you say to somebody that yeah. you know. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Is he with you? You know, I mean, there, there are lots of things that I am not a stand-up, though, right? And I'm not a stand-up comedian. I don't have the skill set to, to really batter down some corrosive individual in the audience. What I know how to do on stage is act. And also, if something goes awry, in other words, if somebody doesn't pick up a cue, a line goes this and that, to keep it going. And that's how, that happens a lot, unfortunately, more than one would like. But, you know, that's also part of the process. It's like, you know, a doctor in the middle of the operation, if something goes wrong, you go, well, this is bad. What am I going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, take a moment, think, you know. <laughs> you know, you don't want anybody just to jerk themselves out all of a sudden, so to speak, and like, you know, pull themselves out of the moment and go, what do you want in any professional situation? <laughs> race car driver your your best friend driving you to you know the airport <laughs> i can't do this this is something i like to ask all actors that i speak with because you know to us laymans like myself uh, i feel like the term method acting is kind of thrown around and it's become muddled i've speak, spoken to enough actors at this point to realize that everyone has their own kind of method an individual method what's your method it's an interesting thing, method acting, because unfortunately, I think it's one of those things that's misconstrued. I'm not going to explain it right now, but my my method is to, and I know this sounds great, but it's to really learn the lines. Learn the lines, learn the lines. Because if the lines are second nature and they're bobbling off your tongue, particularly if you're in a situation where it's vernacular, it's not necessarily set dialogue vis-a-vis -vis Shakespeare. If it is, then you really have to learn your lines and memorize that stuff. You can't deviate from it. And I respect that stuff. You know, a lot of people say because you come out of a second city or an improvisational background, you don't have respect for the script. That's that's bull honky. Once you got this stuff in your head, then you're not groping for stuff to say. If it's in the vernacular world, you know, there's a great acting exercise, like if I'm saying my computer is green, I say it a different way. My uh, laptop is a different color, you know. And so what you do is you try to know the stuff in such a way that if you get stuck, you know the intention behind it. So you can still, in a situation of dialogue, where they say, well, you used glass instead of coffee cup. Well, it doesn't matter in the context. I was still in the moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes you interpolate words and things, but in the larger thing, you're in the thing. And, and the other thing is to understand, and these are pretty basic, but what your want is in a particular situation. For example, right now, I want to give you a good interview and I want to tell you good things. And you would like to have a good interview and you would like to know more about me. So those are our simple wants. Right. The other one could be, I want to make sure that my dog gets who's here dinner on time tonight and that my wife and I, you know, have make our rendezvous. You know, we all have these different wants. I want to make sure, you know, and, and they're all on the, all these different levels, right? And so in order to sort of shelve that into an actor saying, well, what do I, what does the actor want here? What is, you know, what is the script telling me he wants here and there? And sometimes, ironically, you know, it's not important for an actor to know everything that's going on in the script. Yeah, I'm informed about this, but it doesn't really sometimes inform me when another actor is doing it in another scene, unless it informs what I'm supposed to know. You know, so there are things you have to make sure that you cut in and out. That's why certain directors will only give the scenes that the actor is in or that the actor is sort of involved with, because the other stuff is extraneous. 
Yeah. And in life, do you know what your brother is saying right now in another room to, to you know, and do you need to know that? You know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. In the yeah. broad scheme of things, do we know what everybody's saying in other parts of the world in our lives? Right. Unless it informs us, unless my brother's talking to my sister about something that they want to tell me about. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm following you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you have to, as an actor, cut out what's extraneous, right? Do I really need to know this? Is that going to mess me up? Okay, what am I, what are my wants? And then to believe, to believe. And how that it, how that manifests itself, and you know, and that's where either the method comes into play. You know, the very famous story about people that you know with Lawrence Olivier, who was all about his technique, and Dustin Hoffman, who immersed himself in the method, and they were about to shoot the scene in Marathon Man. Do you know this story? I don't. And uh, Dustin Hoffman, you know, this Marathon Man, and and Dust and, and uh, Lawrence Olivier is about to put the you know with this trying to get the thing from his teeth. Is it safe? He's trying to drill Dustin Hoffman's teeth and get these information. Anyway, it's a very, and, and Dustin Hoffman stayed up for days and days and days so he could be ragtag and, you know, really feel horrible. And Lawrence Olivier, just before they yelled action, he turned to him and he says, why don't you try acting, young man? And coming from Olivier, it was perfectly evident that he could become this thing through his own technique. But it became a, a story that everybody talks about to this day, where two sort of massively different styles sort of came into play. If you watch the scene, they're both phenomenal. So where they came from and what the how they arrived at it is somewhat immaterial because they arrived at it. Yeah, it doesn't really matter in the end if they both get there. If you, yeah, you know, it. it I mean, it matters. It matters to them. Yeah, right, yeah. But at the end result is, you know. They got there. And, and you know, it's a little bit inside baseball. It's like, you know, when I'm, you talk to guitar players about what sort of size string they use, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and there are reasons you know, use that sort of string, and it gives a certain sound, but at least they got there. I think that the method is, is more misunderstood now, unfortunately. And it's one of those things that's become so diffuse by so many different actors that you just have to look at the individual actor and see how they're uh, they're wired. John, how do we go from, you know, you're on the stage with Second City, how do you get that first professional screen role? Well, I mean, you know, for me, it was just finding a way in. You know, it was I think my laugh and my smarminess or something, you know, everybody, sometimes reviewers or people would say, oh, he's a greasy or greasy characters or this, you know. But, you know, like 16 Candles and those guys, you know, just to try to get in the door and play these guys. I said to my agent at the time, a wonderful Harris Davidson, who's still a dear friend, I just want to be in the movies. So, you know, get me an audition, even if the part is not within my range. And, and when I was sent in for Rudy Rizchek and 16 Candles, it had been sort of, they were writing it for maybe a different type of uh, family. John sort of reoriented it for my guy. I think they were supposed to be a little bit more uh, haughty toddy but they turned out to be a little bit more not haughty toddy <laughs> He obviously liked what you did because you were in pretty much every John Hughes movie in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, I, I John and I got along. I liked him. He liked me. I didn't know him long enough. And sadly, um, you know, time goes by, you don't see people, then all of a sudden they're not here for right. whatever reason. And I clicked, and yeah, there was, you know, but he also had other actors, John Candy, Steve Martin. There were people that he really liked using. A really wonderful actor from Second City, Larry Hankin. I mean, he used oh, these yeah. guys to great effect. And so John really had a keen eye, and he loved his Second City actor. So I can't say it was merely me, but I'll take, I'll take it. I was cut out of Ferris Bueller, which was a drag. So has there ever been a 
a piece of direction that you've received from a director that made a role or scene click for you in your head? I think when I did uh, Internal Affairs with Michael Figgis, I did this scene with Richard Gere where he's basically feeling my wife up under the table and, and more. And then he shakes my hand with what he's just done. Pretty funky. I don't know specifically what Figgis said to me, but it was one of the times... I don't know. Do you know the movie? Do you know the movie? I'm not familiar with it, no. Well, it's it's not a comedy. <laughs> it's the first film. Do you know the film? Do you know of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I just haven't seen it. It's It's a... I think... Well, that's one of the best movies I think I've been in, but it's also an incredibly, although it's in color, it's a rich film noir, you know, sort of a dark. And Richard Gere, I think, is very brave in the movie. And then Michael Figgis just sort of said, you know, and again, I don't remember specifically what he said, but the words just floated off the page. And it's one of the few times in the movies when, not that I didn't feel like I was acting, but I felt like I was in a different world, you know. And like that's, you know, it sounds like airy-fairy and a little bit, transcendental but it was weird the scene to me has this ethereal quality when i see it it's pretty intense and sexual and depending on how you look on it at it sort of um era got an air of danger mm. john my first personal experience with your work was forever night <laughs> yeah so uh Yankee. do you remember that audition a tip that was that a typical audition is anything stand out about uh, about it to you in retrospect well i mean it's i don't know whether you know this but i did shot the whole pilot episode with rick springfield and then we did it again in canada so it was like repeating a year of school and i was sort of um physically different in the second one i'd put on some weight when i did the ended up doing the series that said i had a deal over at new world television and i had a show of my own and the show didn't go it was called monterey jack i was about an unemployed i mean a man who was a head of a music booking agency and his wife had gone on and become Madonna, and he was raising their child, single parent. And there was another show at the time called Blossom that got picked up instead of our show, which is, again, with uh, about Ted Wass, a single parent, and Liam Bialy was the kid. So the similar plot shows, his took off, ours didn't. So then, in lieu of that, Jim Perriott was putting together this show over at, at uh, New World, which um, eventually became Columbia Pictures Television. And um, this is probably too technical. They brought me on. I did the first um, Nick Knight, it was called, with Farhad Mann, directed it with Rick Springfield. And then they decided to do it in Can Canada and asked me to do it. And that's when I went up and, and did this series again. And John Kassar was the DP, the camera guy on the first episode. He ended up producing... 24 with what's his name Kiefer Sutherland so I mean it was a it was a great learning experience I tell you what forever and I did for me as an actor I mean this is probably boring shit to you but no I, this is why we're here <laughs> <laughs> is that is that I was I loved the experience you know when I first did Tootsie was the very first film I did I was so stiff in front of the camera I thought millions of people are going to watch this I was so unnatural and getting in, in second city getting in front of all those audiences performing in the theater loosens you up but doing 48 episodes of forever night really made me comfortable in front of the camera and it gave me an ease and a comfort not a disrespect and not a not a, ca a cavalier attitude about the camera because i still respect it and and uh, you know adhere to its many many strictures because the camera is something you have to really understand in order to do well in front of it in my opinion it was a freaking exercise in a lot of stuff and you know you think well you know entering the camera from this angle this and you're shooting stuff at three four in the morning you know we had the shooting schedule in forever night was tough because we'd start three in the afternoon and shoot till three in the morning but eventually would slide four in the afternoon five and there were a lot of divorces and shooting at night is really tough 
I spoke with Nigel Bennett about a year and a half ago, and he absolutely hated that filming schedule. <laughs> That's one of the things he talked harped about the most. I couldn't agree with him more. <laughs> um, I, I really like Nigel. I think he's a wonderful performer. And, uh, you know, I think he's great, great, great. And I could not agree with him more. It was debilitating. And I think in a lot of ways, it didn't have to be that way. But there are, there are, there are other ways I could have done it. But, you know. A lot of the success of that show, I think, was definitely the buddy cop aspect, you know, between you and Mr. Davies. Did you guys notice that you got, were hitting it off quick with it? Or did you guys put time into it? Or was it just a natural chemistry type of deal? You know, I don't think we put any time into it. I mean, you know, like worked it out. Geraint is a charming guy. He's a really charming man. He's very attractive. Women love, love, love him. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's he's one of these guys that just drips sort of charm and oozes it. He's Scottish. I mean, I'm sorry, he's Welsh. Jeez, I'm sorry, Geraint. <laughs> well, you know, his father, perhaps he's passed away, but is a minister. It was a lovely, lovely... Geraint's just got a lot of great qualities about him. And I like him. And I liked him instantly. I also like to tease this shite out of him. <laughs> and, and also we come from different acting schools. He's very sort of, you know, he's very sort of um, like those, you know, flashbacks in Forever Night. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I, call it, I could have acted them, but that's not my type of thing. I'm more of a contemporary guy. I, I, and I immediately got what Skanky was about. Skanky was about the audience. He was about like, he was saying stuff that the audience wanted to say. Like, why don't you ever drink anything? <laughs> And, and what is wrong with you? And like, you know, that sort of stuff. Like anybody would like ask of like, what the, why don't I ever see you eat anything? Yeah. Why do you only work night shift? <laughs> and why do you only work night? What is the, what is your problem? I mean, that was my, the human element. And whether the writers or anybody else got that, I got that. And I'm, I'm earth. He's, you know, eternity. I'm total like donuts and, and reality and pimples and poop and, 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 and the way it is to live on, 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 the earth and he's sort of this ethereal being and in terms of like acting styles he's sort of this shakespearean stratford guy and i'm more of a pragmatic i would say um in that quality so i wasn't afraid to improvise change stuff gareth sort of got a little bit pressure about that sometimes we'd conflict about like are you gonna say really gonna say that i go yeah and also there was no way i was not going to make this relationship work you know even if the guy didn't like me and was stiff I was still going to, you know, but Gare was just good crack, as they say in Ireland. <laughs> you know, to this day, you got to find a DVD on uh, eBay. I, I can't find Forever Night Season 3 anywhere. What what happened there between Season 2 and Season 3? I'll be blunt. They jumped from CBS to USA. Jim Perriott says to me in a lunch meeting, they want to go younger. They want to bring in a woman. They want to move you to the, the captain's office and reduce your hours and your pay. So you're, you're basically firing me, you know? I don't want to be, Cagney, Lacey, get in here. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be, and I'm not going to be Stone Tree or whatever they, the guy was, the character, you know, you're not going to move me to the office and then give me one day a week and reduce my pay and say, oh, this is fun. I said, basically, you're firing me. And, I, and then I said to him, uh, and I didn't say this with any rancor or, but I said, I think the show's going to suffer and I think the fans aren't going to like this. You're kind of pulling an element out of the show and if you're going to add this female element, so he's going to have sort of a love interest in the present day. Well, I mean, as a writer, which I am, in addition, I did write and direct an episode of The Code and, and uh, Partners of the Month and all that stuff. And I said to them, he has all these love interests in the backstory. 
to complicate it in the present with a, a woman is the wrong way to go. Give them a young male partner. You know, if you're going to give them a partner, give them a guy that's in his 20s that's going to challenge him with the women that way. I mean, that would be my... But no, they wanted to bring in uh, the young lady, which they did. The rest is history, unfortunately. Yeah, and you know, the problem in this world is, I mean, in this, and many showrunners will tell you this, is because you want to staff these shows with writers, you bring in people that don't know the arc of the stories. So they would change things on Garrett or this and that. And they go, well, wait a minute, he doesn't drink wine. He, or, well, he doesn't do this or he doesn't do that. And you'll find this in a lot of shows, the inconsistencies that arise when somebody in season four didn't know what somebody in season two did. The people that know this are the fans. Fans hate to hear this, but they're sometimes the last people anybody thinks. You know better than I do how ravenous uh, Forever Night fans can be because as, when I teased that you were coming on here, I got hit with a good bit of messages in my Instagram account for questions. And the one that comes up the most, I have to ask or I'll be crucified, is this. Have you had any contact or do you know how Deborah Duchesne is doing? Because she's completely disappeared off the face of the earth since that show, essentially. No, I don't. I am concerned, but I have no idea where she is. And I'll probably ask around them because enough people have asked. I'll try to find something out. A lot of people would appreciate that, myself included. They just, not just to make sure she's, you know, doing well and all that good stuff. I think that that is a, a fair, fair, fair question. And a lot of people, myself included, care about her and, and are curious and hope, you know, are curious about her well being and hope that she's well. So let me see what I can find out. I can't make any promises. Understood. To move on from Forever Night, uh, John, this is a minor role of yours that my wife freaked out about because her favorite movie <laughs> is Legally Blonde. I love that. Yeah. I love working on it. Yeah, There's so, no reason to laugh. Don't laugh. <laughs> so when you... When she, good taste. Dewey Newcomb is my character in that. I unfortunately did the movie uncredited because I had an unscrupulous manager at the time who um, neglected to do his job. That yeah. said, I love doing the movie. Uh, I think Jennifer Coolidge is swell, swell, swell. Reese was uh, cute to work with. I didn't really get to interact with her as much as Jennifer. I mean, Jennifer's done incredibly well. Yeah, yeah, really, she has. And she's really, really funny and idiosyncratic. Uh, that film was an interesting experience because I had to burst out of this door and go, what do you want, to um, Jennifer Coolidge. And the young director, a fellow named Robert Luketic, had just directed a beautiful small Australian film and then was given this huge gargantuan movie to direct. And there are literally about 10 producers in front of the monitor on the set. And this guy's kind of trying to bounce up to see the monitor, the director. And not that he was out of his depth, because he wasn't, but I think he was a little bit nervous and nerve-wracked. Mm -hmm. And as I said, all these producers were Mark Platt or whoever they were, crowded around the, um, the monitor. They made me open that door like, you know, what do you want? Over 30, 35 times. Honestly, they didn't know what they wanted. They go, okay, well, open it this time like you're angry. What do you want? Next time, okay, um, no, 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 it's too angry. Uh, a little bit more questioning. What do you want? No, 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 no. Uh, could you do it angry and questioning? What do you want? It's like, no, no, too questioning, maybe a little less angry. <laughs> and on and on. Meanwhile, we also had a, a, a dog in that thing. But, you know, the saving grace was working with Jennifer because she's so effing funny that it was kind of like the time I worked with Michael Richards on Seinfeld. I really had to control from not breaking up on screen. Difficult to do when that little mouse, the rat in the skull is going, mm, you're going to laugh, you're going to laugh. What would you say is the best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you? 
Oh, God, that's such a good question. I think, I don't know whether this is good advice, but I think, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually breaking the rule. I think actually the best thing to do sometimes is to, if you're doing a lot of dialogue, that it's not a bad thing to talk fast on screen. And an actor once told me, the, the expression is bullshit, but stars talk fast. Well, you know, I mean, Cary Grant and Bringing Up Baby, or I mean, um, the front page, or, you know, one of these classic films where people are just rattling it off. But there is something to be said with the rapidity in dialogue and to no pace. And another actor once said to me, we were talking about actors, and the difference between this actor and that actor is taste, right? Now, taste is a very subjective thing, and sometimes you don't think of taste when it comes to actors. But what, why does this person make this choice and this person make that choice? And why is this choice more interesting or tastier or more provocative than that choice? And then you come into this whole notion of taste. And taste is, again, a very subjective thing. And it's a very delicate thing. But what makes this guitarist sound better than that one? Why is this interpretation of a Dylan song more interesting than this one? You know what I mean? Understanding in, in subtext and all those sort of elements. So when you get the words out of the way, and even the stuff like your want in the scene and your sort of your basic stuff as an actor, then you can get down to the real work. And then when you see an actor like Mark Rylance, for example, today, who I think is the bomb, he's incredible. You know who he is? Not off the top of my head, no. He's a phenomenal actor. Check him out. <laughs> I will. English actor. But when you see actors like that, Daniel Day-Lewis, etc., even Brad Pitt, you know, he gets better. It's better. And another thing, Martin Brest and De Niro taught me this a bit when I spent a day on, I didn't do any parts in the movie, but I spent a whole day with De Niro on Midnight Run. And I realized a lot of acting is thinking. You're thinking about what the person might do next. Now, so to show somebody thinking is a very, but let's say one of my favorite movies is Bullet. You know, even watching Steve McQueen, Great Escape, Bullet, just these moments like he's a very silent actor, but he's not silent because... The wheels are always turning. He's thinking, you know, and on to the next thing. And that has to do with writing. And good acting is thinking. It's not always talking. And when you talk, you know, make your point. And remember your lines. Well, you know, there's the Spencer Tracy, you know, learn your lines, hit your mark, and don't bump into the furniture. <laughs> and strangely enough, that's fucking true. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it simple. <laughs> well, I mean, never be afraid. And I'll say this to actors and people, never be afraid to ask what you think is the dumbest or simplest question. Because sometimes it turns out to be the most profound. Well, like, so. which way does this door open is a simple question. But sometimes if you don't know which way the door opens, you don't know if it's going to hit you in the face or cut your finger in two, which it did, or other things. So, you think, well, that's a simple question. Um, when you're running through at full speed, people coming at you with guns, well, boom, we want to know, does that door, when it opens, slap back at you? Can we try this for full speed rehearsal? We don't have time. Ah, if we don't have time, we get injured. So these are, you know, these are things you learn on a film set so you don't get hurt and um, you don't hurt others. I know that that sounds, the whole thing that unfortunately this happened to Mr. Baldwin is like, oh, you know, I, unspeakably, you know, one should never encounter things like that. Well, just to wind down with these last two here, John, I'm not going to keep you all afternoon. Uh, have I bored you? I mean, are no, you no, 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 not at all. I'm not funny at all today. I mean, I, have to <laughs> I want to show you something. This is the stage I was at at Second City in Chicago. Wow. Did you build that? No, um, I had a friend of ours build it for us, uh, and it was a cast gift 
that the stage manager, Craig Taylor, and I gave to our cast low these many years ago. We gave it to them in 1985. Did you work at Rob Paulson with Second City at all? I, don't, I think he was at Second City. Uh, he was, I believe he was after me. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm an old cart. <laughs> I was going to say codger and fart, and then I said cart. So I'm an old cart. Hey, it adds up. <laughs> Uh, this is a, another question I like to ask everyone, John. Uh, have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Yeah. My mother um, was lying in the uh, assisted living facility. It was at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. And she woke up out of a coma and said, call Caitlin. Caitlin's in trouble. Caitlin was my 11-year-old niece. She insisted. And she was in a coma. She'd been in a, she hadn't been talking much. She woke up out of this. She had a brain tumor. So... She insisted. We, I got on the phone and I called my brother-in-law and he said, well, Caitlin's at school. They had a snow day. This was supposed to be a home day, but it was a snow day. So they sent them to school today to make a makeup day at school. I got off the phone. And I said to my mother, Caitlin's okay, mom. No, call Caitlin. 20 minutes later, we get a call back from my brother-in-law. Caitlin has been admitted to the emergency room because she, had a, she passed out at school. Approximately the same moment, my mother woke up and said, call Caitlin. So you tell me. Caitlin is my mother's Caitlin Ann, and my mother's name was Anna. So Caitlin was named after my mother. And they had a connection, and my mom died shortly thereafter. And Caitlin survived um, a massively, she had a, a huge sort of a chemical deficiency in her body that had to be uh, fixed with um, drugs that she takes to this day. Wow. So it was, and she was just starting, she was 12 or 13, so she was just starting her female stuff. So this is what happened that Monday morning at 10.30. So, you know, I'm a skeptic. That blew me out of the water. Well, John, just to put a bow on this here, uh, what's on the horizon for you? You got anything in the pipeline that you can share without getting in trouble? Well, to be honest with you, I'm getting my knee replaced next Monday. Yeah, you did mention that. I hope that goes smoothly for you. I hope so. And then beyond that, I, I hope to uh, be doing a, my own show that I've been writing and developing. And um, the jury's still out on what we're going to call it. But it's sort of a film noir detective thing. Okay, that's right up your alley. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I yeah, it is, and I, and, and and you know, I really look forward to doing it. And this is my office, my my think tank in here. So this is where all the uh, nightmares happen. Well, that's awesome, John. Uh, I look forward to that, and I want to just thank you for giving me some of your time here. Well, thank you for letting me yammer away. <laughs> hey, I enjoyed it. We'll have to do it again when you get that other show off the ground. Let me know when this is. Uh, Showing. Do you show it or do you? Uh... I, I'll I'll do everything, uh, but I'll edit it and make it pretty. You know, my uh, motto is fix it in post. <laughs> God, where have I heard that before? <laughs> I want that T-shirt. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Good merch. Thank, thank you for your time and trouble. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with John. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>